Uh, let's do our scripture reading. And this is from today, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. So that's page 1041 all the way in the back. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to see each of you. I love uh, I love these these moments uh, when yeah Christmas uh, just kind of intersects with uh, with a Sunday morning, and it's always fun to see. I feel like it's just like your biggest fans who come on Christmas, you know, right on these moments. So um, thanks for being here, like Holly said, and excited to uh, wrap up. This is our final message in uh, in our Advent series, going through looking a little bit at heaven and. Um, it's our last, our last one. So I'd love to pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. So Father in heaven, thank you that you are the rock of our salvation. And we thank you for your wonderful purpose that your son would become one of us, and yet without sin, a sympathetic high priest on our behalf. And so would you grant us, uh, just as you did for Mary, to treasure all these things and to ponder them in our heart, all the wonder of your son, our Redeemer, and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in this message, this final one of our little five-week look at heaven, we want to ask the question, what will heaven actually be like? What will, well, you know, they have those kind of first moments in heaven. What will we experience? What will it be like? What will it look like, taste like, feel like, sound like? And I, I love how vivid kids' imaginations can be about heaven, and we've had some impassioned debates around our dining room table as a family. You know, we have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old. A uh, two-year-old doesn't get involved too much in these conversations, but a seven-year-old and a four-year-old about what will heaven be like, and where is it going to be? Uh, our youngest, uh, or the younger of the two, the four-year-old, she's convinced it is in, in the ground in grandma's backyard, because that's where we've buried the cat. So she says that's where heaven is, uh, in the ground, in grandma's backyard, because we've, we've buried some cats back there. And she's like, that's where the cats are, that's where heaven is. Um, other, you know, Lucy, seven-year-old, she says, no, Isla, heaven's up in the sky. Uh, so we've had these conversations. And in this series, we've been pushing ourselves to, to look, though, carefully at what does the Bible actually teach about heaven? Um, and, and sort of, we tried to sort of refresh our imaginations on what the Bible actually teaches rather than sort of what we maybe have picked up in popular culture or movies or cartoons along the way. And, uh, you know, we've seen the Bible challenges some of those conceptions. But if you are a person who believes in heaven at all, and, and whether you are a Christian uh, or not, uh, if you have some sense that there is a heaven, I think most people believe that heaven is a place of pleasure, a a paradise, a place of delight. 
And the Bible agrees with that. It says a bold yes to that. Heaven, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, they are a place of paradise, uh, of the highest possible pleasure and joy and delight. It is the, the Garden of Eden regained, but not just regained as it was in Genesis chapter 2, but completed and built out into all that it was intended to be. But so often our imaginations, they, they fall short of what it's going to actually be. And I just want to ask the question, why is that the case? And I think to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, it's not because our imaginations are too strong, but because they're too weak, not because they're too vivid, but not vivid enough. We think of the pleasures of heaven as, uh, you know, maybe a, a golf course and a pina colada or a mountain cabin or a, a pool uh, or a beach. And I'm sure, I'm convinced that those things or something far better than those things will be in heaven. But I think those are just such a small, small part of what our existence in heaven is actually going to be like for eternity. So today I want to invite us to think bigger, to imagine grander, to dream more spectacularly. Knowing that even our best biblically saturated imaginations will fall short of the reality. But we can be rest assured in this, that whatever our imaginations are, that we won't be able to out-imagine what it will actually be. And so here's the bottom line this morning, that heaven will be like the best of this world, only much better. Heaven will be like the very best of this world, only much better. And as we look again, and we've spent a lot of time in these final chapters of Revelation over the past uh, really couple of months as we wrapped up our series in Revelation and have gone back to them a number of times even in the last few weeks, we find three metaphors or three images that invite our imaginations to, to be sort of further enriched by the pleasures of the new heavens and the new earth. But before we look at those three images, those three metaphors that we see in these final verses of the Bible, I want to just review quickly where we've been in this series on heaven. So we began by looking at Jesus' teaching in John 14, this promise that Jesus gave that we are going to be with him and that specifically he's going ahead of us to prepare a place for us that Jesus has promised us our hope of heaven is based on, one, Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection, and two, his promise that he's going to prepare a place for us. So we had the, the promise of heaven at the beginning. And, and then we looked at this idea of the place of heaven. And this is maybe where, uh, for many of us, this kind of concept was, was new, that heaven is coming to earth, that the, the hope in the Bible is not that we somehow escape the material world and go off to a disembodied heavenly state floating in the crowds, but rather God is going to unite heaven and earth together one day, a new heavens and a new earth. But we're going to have bodies and enjoy the material world. It'll be perfected, completed. And, and then we looked at the people of heaven, that God is building this big, multi-ethnic family of every tongue and tribe and nation and language are going to be brought into this place that from the very beginning, God has purposed, even in Adam and Eve, for there to be this grand diversity of humanity, of his image bearers that have this kind of kaleidoscopic view of who God is, that each of us, as we bear God's image, we reveal something unique about him that no one else does, and that God wants this massive family of cultures and languages and tribes and tongues and nations to show forth 
his glory. And then last week, we looked at the person of heaven. Jesus himself is heaven come to earth. That when we celebrate Christmas, that this is the first moment when heaven and earth unite, when God himself takes on a human form. He becomes a human. Heaven and earth are joined together in the person of Jesus. And today, we conclude with the pleasures of heaven. What is it going to be like there? We're not going to be able to unpack all of the glories of that. If you, if you want to go deeper on that sometime, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven is Wonderful, as well as Scott McKnight's little book, The Heaven Promise, both have you know, numerous uh, chapters on just kind of painting a picture. But we're going to, in the time we have this morning, dive into sort of three pictures, three images of heaven. And the first one is that of the city. So life in the new heavens and new earth will be like the best city, only better. Like the best city, only better. And the city imagery is all over these final two chapters of the Bible. And just listen again to a few verses from chapter, these are just like some highlights from chapter 21 and 22. Uh, this is 21 verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then you, you skip down to verse 10, and this, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven having the glory of God, its radiance, like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then down to verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So the Bible story, if you, you sort of open this Bible and you look at the very opening chapters, it starts in a garden. God creates a garden in chapter 2, but it ends in a city, but the city is a garden city, right? It's, it's this garden of Eden perfected, completed. The new Jerusalem is the garden brought to all that it was going to be. And when Rachel and I were dating, uh, I was in the midst of planting the downtown campus. So we, I was living downtown, and we were just kind of gathering the small group of people that was going to plant what became the downtown campus. And I lived in downtown right at 10th and Broadway in the Coats House Hotel building right across from the Quaff. And I lived there for a couple years and I just ate, drank, breathed the city center life. I loved being there. We were preparing to launch this thing. But Rachel, on the other hand, she grew up and was actually at that time living still with her parents at 187th and home. So way far south, right on the edge of anything that could be called a city. Uh, on five acres of, of beautiful landscape. I mean, her parents loved to garden. I mean, she lived in a garden practically, this gorgeous five-acre park that they lived in. And she worked at a greenhouse. She worked at Suburban Lawn and Garden and spent her days inside of a greenhouse. She had tons of plants in, in her room. In fact, one of the biggest things, I, this isn't in my notes, but just since we're all just here as family today, one of the biggest things that she was worried about when we were going to get married is she's like, she had all these orchids in her bedroom at home because she had these big windows. And she's like, if we go to live in this loft with these tiny windows, are my orchids all going to die? I mean, this is, I remember her kind of tearing up about this, like, what are we going to do with my plants? Are they going to be able to live in the city? And as we began to move toward, you know, our engagement and marriage, she gave me this postcard that she had. So I don't know if you can see this. this is a, uh, I just took a picture. This is a postcard she gave me. And it's called, the title of this painting is called The Greening of Chicago. And she wrote this on the back. I actually dug up this postcard. We actually have it framed on a bookshelf by where I often read. And this is what she wrote on the back of it. She said, I found this picture at the Chicago Art Institute a while back. It reminded me immediately of you and your love for the city. Plus, it's called The Greening of Chicago, 
and the and, and there you have it the love of the city and my love for the garden combined in one picture amazing and that picture, I love this, this picture because it, maybe it's hard to see from there, but you can see like even the buildings, they all have plants kind of growing up them. Uh, so it's like this downtown Chicago city center scene, but the plants are sort of taking over the buildings. And then it's a great picture of the garden city, of the new heavens and the new earth, what we're waiting for. And when you go down to Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, the, the verses Holly just read for us, you see this, the images of the Garden of Eden, Eden are overlaid vividly onto the city. So notice the language of the river and the tree of life. These are images right out of Genesis chapter 2. And now they're here in Revelation 22, verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street with the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, and its 12 kinds of fruit. So the goodness of the garden and the glory of the city have been brought together. In heaven we will experience and create the very best of art and culture, and farming, and entertainment, and so much more. And just think, I just want you to engage your imagination here. Think about any city you've visited. And, and think about it, not at, not at its worst, you know, the crime, pollution, poverty, injustice, all those things. The, the, here's the deal. Cities concentrate and magnify both the good and the bad of humanity. But so I, I want you not to think about the, the magnification of the bad of humanity, but think about any city you visited at the very best parts of it. And, and what do you have? Museums, commerce, creativity, sports, great design and architecture, music, diversity of languages and culture and ethnicity, great restaurants and recreation. The very best parts of what it is to live in a, in a beautiful city will be present in heaven all these will be there, and we will serve one another in producing those wonders. Which brings me to the first question for this sermon this morning, kind of from an application standpoint, and that is, have you ever wondered, will we work in heaven? Will I have a job in heaven? Will we work in heaven? And, and maybe your knee-jerk response to that is, no, or I hope not. <laughs> And when I think about heaven, you know, my mind, if you're me, goes to a national park vacation, not a day in the office. And, and I think it's easy for us to say, and isn't, isn't work the result of sin in the world and this ideal of the toil of the ground, the sweat of the brow, and all of this? And, but that's a, that's a misunderstanding of the biblical story because work is part of the goodness of the garden before sin enters. Now, what happens after sin is that work becomes toil, and there are thorns and thistles, and labor is painful, and there is the sweat of the brow, but the idea of work of having meaningful contribution in the world is an integral part of Adam and Eve bearing God's image. And yet, even every once in a while, even though we live on this side of the garden, on this side of the fall, and we live in a place where work is toilsome, where it is hard, where there are thorns and thistles, we get a glimpse of, I think we get glimpses occasionally, of what work must have been like before sin. When you're exercising your gifts and your talents and, and feeling that deep satisfaction that comes when you're able to focus on a task and finish that task. 
And think about it, one person's work is often another person's hobby. So, so one person might work in a restaurant cooking for a living. Another person might live for the opportunity to cook on the weekends as, as an avocation, as, as, a, as a hobby, as something they do for delight. And the people who are often the most happy and satisfied in this life are those who have the privilege to make what they love doing their living. Also, I think another thing that clouds our thinking around work is that we tend to think of work as primarily a means of earning income. And, and it's not less than that, right? We need a way in this world to, to earn income. And it is important, but it's not primary because work is first and foremost about contribution, not compensation. Work is first and foremost about contribution, doing something to contribute to God's world, not about compensation, which is why children can work, which is why if you are unemployed in the moment, you can still contribute. Why if you're retired in life or disabled or whatever it might be, work is not just about earning a paycheck, but about contributing. So I think about our daughters. They, they are now old enough to help clean up the dishes and load the dishwasher. I don't give them a paycheck for that, but they're contributing to the life of our family. So will we work in heaven? I think the answer is absolutely yes. But we will work, but without frustration. We will no longer have toil, there will no, but there would be delight in our work. Our purpose as humans made in the image of God from the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 28, is to rule. We were created for a royal identity, to be kings and queens who, who rule over God's good world with him. And here in the new heavens and new earth, that purpose is restored and completed. If you look at verse 5, the final verse that Holly read for us, you see this language, night will be no more, people will need no light or lamp or light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and then listen to these final words, they will reign forever and ever. Part of our work in the new creation will be helping to rule over God's world. And that doesn't necessarily mean sitting on a throne and making pronouncements, but actually contributing to art, to culture, to goodness, to beauty. Which means that the work you do right now and the recreation you're at now, your vocations and your avocations, are training you to reign one day and work in heaven. Now, what will our jobs be? What will your job be? I don't know exactly. I mean, some whole fields of work will no longer exist in the form that they do now, right? So uh, think about healthcare, doctors, nurses, physical therapists. If, if we're in a place where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sickness, uh, doctors are not going to be needed. What about police officers and lawyers? If there's no more crime, you know, that's going to look different. Even pastors, I don't know exactly what, what I'll be doing. But think about the skills that you have if you are a police officer or a lawyer or a healthcare professional or a pastor. Think about the skills that made you great at that job, that made you love it. Maybe it was your ability to research or your empathy or your compassion or um, your ability to understand people. How might those skills, those, those longings be repurposed in a whole new kind of field? Or maybe you're someone who you have hated the job you've had to work every day. And you say, Bill, it is just about earning the paycheck. If I didn't have to do this to put food on the table, I would not do it. But what would you do if you could do whatever you long for? Maybe you're stuck in a job you just hate. But what do you dream about doing? 
again, not just on a vacation, but like if you could earn money doing that, whatever that is, think about how those gifts and skills might be used in the new heavens and new earth. Our work will be a source of joy and delight and meaning. Heaven will be like the best city, only better. So that's, that's the first image, the image of the city. Here's the, here's the second image. It's this, that heaven will be like the best wedding, only better. And you get this wedding and bride husband language a lot in these final chapters as well uh, that this, this describe what the new heavens and new earth will be like. And here's, again, just a sampling of a few. Verse 7 uh, from chapter 19, actually, dipping back into chapter 19. The marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So heaven is going to be like the best wedding, only better. And think about that. What's the best, most extravagant wedding that you've ever been to? sure a lot of you have been to to weddings over your time and just think about what was the most extravagant wedding celebration you've ever attended and i know mine without a doubt it was actually shortly after rachel and i got married about six months after we got married two of our very best friends married one another and we went to their wedding and the, the church was a beautiful church on on ward parkway that they had for the church and um we went to this gorgeous country club afterward for this wedding celebration. And it wasn't just the places that were beautiful, but it was so many of our friend groups overlapped, and um, we, you know, was colleagues, and so it was people from church, and friends, and family, and all gathered together. And we're at this, this gorgeous wedding reception at this country club, and there just seemed like unlimited, uh, you know, appetizers, and food, and drinks, and music, and dancing. And it was just, I will always remember that wedding. Just a wonderful, wonderful time together. That day and night will always stand as one of the most vivid foretastes, even of, of what heaven's going to be like. Of all of it, the food, the drink, the relationships, the dancing, the laughter, the delight, the celebration. And this image of, of a wedding party, a wedding supper, it captures the joy and life of union of heaven and earth. There'll be feasting and celebration and rest and no more tears and no more sadness and no more estranged relationships, no more fear, no more fear of others, no more broken relationships, no more divorce, no more sadness. Friendships renewed, new friendships made. Think about that. The new friendships that we'll be able to make. You guys know how much I love Lewis. I look forward to the moment when I get to spend time with C.S. Lewis in heaven. I believe that we'll be able to do that. I might have a long list. I might have to wait a few thousand years to get that appointment with him at the pub in Oxford, but it's okay. I've got plenty of time. Here's also the thing, though. I think some of our best friendships and the people who are going to stun us the most are not the people who we knew as famous in this life, but people who toiled quietly in obscurity, serving a family, serving the poor, whose names we never knew. Those are the people who we're going to long to spend time with. But not only renewed friendships, but these new friendships with people who we're just going to be stunned to know and see in all their beauty. And this is why, 
you know, it's not just a, a luxury, but a necessity in this time to feast and to celebrate. We must feast and celebrate now and, and do that even in extravagant ways. Now, there's, there's gluttony. We don't want to do that. But extravagant feasting in this time in life is an important signpost to what is coming. And yes, there are seasons for fasting. That's why I love the rhythms of the church calendar, right? You have Advent that leads up to Christmas, which is a time of, of feasting. Advent is a time of fasting. Lent is a season of, of fasting. Then you go to Easter, which is a celebration time of fasting. And I, I just love this. Uh, and there's this little book called Every Moment Holy. And it's a little set of prayers and liturgies for every kind of ordinary moment in, in life. There's, you know, one for changing a diaper, one for doing a yard sale. I just, it's like really, just like how do we infuse these ordinary moments of life and see what God is doing in them? But one of them is a prayer called for feasting with friends. And I love how it begins. It's much longer than this. I'm just going to read you the first few lines. But he writes this, To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. Have you ever thought about that? When you sit down to your Christmas celebration or your New Year's Eve party with a family or friends and you pour the wine and you set out the good food, that this is an act of war against the sadness and the sorrow. This feast says it will no longer be like this forever. Now, thinking about weddings and marriage may also prompt uh, a question for you. Well, you know, is there work in heaven? You know, what about that? But what about this? And this question can probably be put in a book called Everything You Wanted About Heaven, but we're afraid to ask. Will there be sex in heaven? Have you ever wondered that? No, not me, Bill. I'm far too holy to wonder about that. No, seriously, have you ever wondered that? What, what's the future? They're not, now, the answer is absolutely yes, if we mean sex by male and female. We're not going to become neutered creatures. We're going to maintain our, our maleness and our femaleness. This is part of the goodness of God's creation. We're created in his name as male and female. But if you see, mean by sex, like, you know, actually sex, I think C.S. Lewis has provided the best response to this. Have you ever heard Lewis's response to this question? He says, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was, like the high, it was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolate at the same time. And on receiving the answer, no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain you would tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother with chocolates is they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. Lewis says, we are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing in heaven which will leave no room for it. Which is, and, then he, and then he continues and tacks this on at the end. What is no longer needed for biological purposes may be expected to survive for splendor. And I'll explain what he means by that in just a moment. But so our sexual experience will be different in the new creation. We will still be male and female but not because the current experience of sexuality is bad. And I think this is the thing we have to be very careful of. But rather that the sexual experience is designed to be a picture of the uniting of heaven and earth as well as part of God filling the earth with his image bearers. But when you reach new heavens and new earth, those things are completed. Heaven and earth have come together as one. The picture is no longer needed as well as heaven and earth have been populated by his image bearers. So there's no longer the biological necessity. The work of filling the earth is complete. The ultimate marriage has come. But now our bodies, 
indeed all of our bodies, will exist for beauty, every part of them. And that's what Lewis means there by what is no longer needed for biological purposes may be expected to survive for splendor. He's not suggesting we will become, or rather, excuse me, he's suggesting we won't become sort of neutered Ken and Barbie dolls, but rather retain our physicality for the sake of beauty, even if no longer for necessary utility. Bet you didn't think you were going to hear that in a Christmas sermon after Christmas, right? The questions of wedding and marriage and sexuality, though, often lead us to wonder about what will marriages and families be like, our relationships be like in the new heavens and new earth, which takes us to our third and final image today. And that is that life in the new heavens and new earth will be like the best family, only better. Like the best family over, only better. And this is because we're adopted into God's big family as daughters and sons, and we will be brothers and sisters. So look at 21 verse 7. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We are all, this language of adoption is all over the scriptures, that we're invited into, adopted into God's family. And I know for all of us at some level, and some of us at an extreme level, family is difficult now, right? Even if you have the very best of families growing up, or you have a wonderful family now, family is a place of challenge, right? But, and for others of us, the idea of family might bring up memories of argument, or disappointment, or pain, or divorce, or abuse, But whether your own family, whether you had a glimpse of it in your own family of what the best family could be like, or or maybe growing up you had a friend whose home you went to and you just thought, oh, if our family could be like this. You know, it's just, they seem to love one another, care about one another. There was always, you know, food in the fridge and an extra chair at the table. I hope at some point, whether it was in your own family or someone else, you got a glimpse of just, this this is what family should be like. I got a glimpse of that over Thanksgiving. Um, we were with Rachel's family, her, her brother and uh, his wife and kids and her mom and dad, and we all trekked down to Big Bend National Park for our Thanksgiving dinner and, and just spent the whole week down there. It was wonderful. And I just remember we were gathered at, you know, put two picnic tables together at the campsite. We, did, we didn't have a turkey, you know, and couldn't cook a turkey at the campsite, but we had flank steak, and it was just this big spread of food on the campground. I just looked around. There's three generations there at that table. There was husbands and wives, parents, grandparents, children, aunts, uncles, cousins, all camping together, and we worked together, and we played together, and we hiked together, and laughed and feasted together. And it was just a little glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. For us now, the greatest loneliness is the crushing loneliness of feeling like no one understands you while at the same time being afraid to let anyone fully know you. And all of that will evaporate in the new heavens and the new earth. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, because we will know God, but we will also fully be known by him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is kind of the famous love chapter, but toward the end of that, you get this. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... In the new heavens and new earth, then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall be fully known, and then I shall know even as I have been fully known. The essence of joy is being seen and known and loved by another who is delighted to see you and be with you. 
And this is supremely God, our creator. He made us and he loves us and he wants to be with us. And more people, as they study neurobiology, they say that joy registers for us in face-to-face connection with one another. Joy is communicated in the face. And this is why it is different to talk to someone on the phone than to and just kind of hear their voice versus to FaceTime with them and actually see their face. More happens as you have a face-to-face, even if it's over video. And God made us this way for face-to-face joy with Him and with others. Listen again to Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. Notice the face language. They, His servants, us, we will see God's face and His name will be on our foreheads. The great hope is that we will see Him face-to-face. This is the fountain of all joy forever, but this does not mean that we will simply gaze endlessly into the face of God. Rather, it means that we will see God fully in all that we will do. So in everything we do, we are seeing His face. As we make a meal, as we go fishing, as we do the work that we have, we will see God's face in all of it. We won't make idols of creation anymore. Rather, all the enjoyment of life will also be perfect enjoyment of Him. Okay, so what about that question then that we began with in this section? Will will there be marriages and families in heaven? And again, I think the best answer to that question is not in exactly the same way. We've already seen that all of humanity will be one big family adopted and known by our Father, and marriage will be fulfilled in our perfect union with Jesus. But here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that our closest relationships now of parent and child, brother and sister, husband and wife, will all just somehow be neutralized and and leveled out, and I won't, you know, know Rachel any more closely than I know Mother Teresa. I don't know. I really believe that we will pick up right where we left off with our closest and best relationships. Rachel's my, my very best friend on earth. I have no reason to think and every reason to believe that she will remain my closest friend in those first hours of heaven together. That I will greet my mom and dad and our families will feast with aunts and uncles and cousins around our table. And that this is just the beginning because we have all of eternity to get to know and love and treasure others who we didn't know in this life. But I think I'm going to know my kids. And I think I'm going to know my spouse and my dear friends, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. So what will heaven be like? What are the greatest pleasures there? They are the greatest pleasures of now, only better, only completed, only freed from sin. Jesus died and so freed us from sin so that we could fulfill our creative purpose and reign with him. We ruined the garden, but he built us a city. We cheated on him, but he married us anyway. We hid and ran away from him, but he found us and adopted us. And in communion, we celebrate and remember our union and our adoption and our hope of the city to come, a city whose founder and builder is God himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have promised us better than we can imagine truly beyond what we could hope or ask. And I pray that as we celebrate communion together, we would be reminded of the sacrifice that makes that possible and the sense of closeness, even with this group of folks here in this room, 
that this is just a foretaste of the genuine love and relationships that will continue and be amplified for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.